All right, if you guys have Bibles, you can open them to, to Luke chapter 3. Um, we're going to first read verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to go all the way through, uh, through 21, actually. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we always have the text on the screen, um, so don't, don't panic. Um, you may be wondering, why is it during Christmas we're focusing on John the Baptist? It's because John the Baptist was the prophet of the Messiah. He was the last prophet of Israel, and he's in all four Gospels, and very few things are in all four Gospels besides the crucifixion resurrection, right? And so who John says the Messiah is, the one who comes after him, is supposed to tell us who Jesus is and also how we're to respond. Hear the word of God from Luke chapter 3. We're just going to do verses 1 through 3. Uh, first. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etruria, forgiveness of sin. Please pray with me. God, I pray that in your word, we, the, the picture of our coming Savior, for us, the Savior who has come and we wait to come again, that we would understand more of what you're doing in the world through Jesus. Amen. At, uh, at Grace and Peace, we sometimes, like to do, um, we sometimes like to do a thought experiment. Some of you have done this with us before, others have not. But I'm going to ask all of you to do it with me right now. Okay, I want you to imagine a ladder, but not just any ladder, a ginormous ladder. A ladder so ginormous that all 7 billion people in the world and change can fit on this ladder. In fact, you and I are on it too. Are you picturing it? It's huge, right? Everybody's on this ladder and, and you know, we're, we're all somewhere in the middle of it. And we look up and you recognize people at the top. There's very few people at the top. But, you know, there's, at the tippy top, you've got like heads of state, you know, Putin's up there and Joe Biden and... and you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, um, whoever, and the captains of industry, Zucks is up there, and Jeff Bezos, and a lot of white dudes, but anyway, um, and, and then like military brass is up there, and you're like, wow, I recognize those people, not many people up there, but they're up there, and then you look down, and way down below you, you see some dollar-a-day farmers, and you see some Bangladeshi factory workers, you're like, huh. But another thing you notice is that everybody is pointed upward. Everybody is climbing up. And you understand why? Because you look back up there and there's luxury travel up there and houses on the beach. And those folks up there get a say in the world of how the world actually functions. And then you look down and you're like, oh, there's malaria down there and food insecurity and you know, some people who, are, who have to leave their countries as refugees. Huh. So that's understandable why everybody wants to get to the top. But how does one get there? Something that you notice is that it's really a lot more difficult to get up to the next rung if you're humble. It's a lot more difficult to get up to the next rung if you consider others, if you're others-centered. Now, some people have gotten to the top through genuine hard work. They weren't born with much. And, and, you know, you see like Angela Merkel up there. She started from very little and like Cardi B, 
You know, they, they just through talent and hard work, they climbed a great deal on this ladder. Some were just born up there, like the Murdoch boys are up there. You're like, ah, right on, just born up there. That's cool. And, but, but everybody else, you notice the people who climb the furthest, the fast, fastest, do so through whatever means necessary, through ruthless ambition, by stepping on people on the way up or knocking people off who are trying to overtake them. Well, what's the result? I mean, because we all recognize this situation, that overwhelmingly to go up in the world means adopting a character of ruthless ambition, uh, of greed, and the rest of it. We see what the effect on the world is. It's a world that favors ruthless ambition. We first of all see that throughout, globally speaking, the wicked reign. Now, try and think outside of our own nation, especially those of us who were, who were born here. Or you were, you've, we've had really good governance by comparison. Let, let's be totally frank about that. But did you know that the majority, the vast majority of people on planet Earth right now live under dictatorships? I mean, think about the people at the top of this ladder. Orban, Lukashenko, Putin, uh, uh, Kim Jong-un, um, uh, Museveni. You know, these are not people who got there through talent, hard work, and honesty. They got there through ruthlessness, through brutality, and that's how they hang on to their power. And that is a more often told story than people who just want to be good public servants, like we've mostly had in the U.S. Even, even in the U.S., there are people who are trying to climb the political system with, with ruthless ambition exploiting the polarization of our country, making it worse. Why? Because they want power. Because they want to get further up the ladder. There are people who make their fortunes honestly, found companies that do awesome things, and there are people who got to the top of that ladder in business by exploiting workers, by paying starvation wages, by taking advantage of the people at the bottom. It also results in, in incredible inequality. Now, I am a good conservative, so I don't have a problem with inequality per se, but it gets ridiculous. I heard a story, and this is true, you can look this up. There is a German shepherd, I forget his name. It's something the sixth, I'm going to uh, look it up, but it's a German shepherd whose, whose owner left him a fortune of $500 million dollars. And so this German shepherd lives in a mansion on Biscayne Bay in Miami, flies by private jet, and has servants waiting on him, okay? This in a nation where there's a lot of hardworking, honest people who can't afford a car to get to work. That, uh, that's not creating jobs, folks. That's not, that's not trickle-down economics. A dog having a $500 million, I get it, it's a... It's an, it's an exception, but I mean, look at how the Sackler family was treated in our courts of law. Sackler family, if you don't know, are largely responsible for the opium, uh, the opioid pan, whatever epidemic, deliberately hooked millions and millions of people. Hundreds of thousands died from overdoses. If they were a street dealer, they'd be buried under the jail 
none of them are going to do time. But the people that they got hooked are doing time. Are we good with this? Is this how things are supposed to be? Are we, do we like the latter? And, and if you are a Christian, or anybody, what are you supposed to do about the ladder? How, you're on the ladder, and that's unavoidable. What does God want us to do? Well, I'm going to tell you two big secrets that many of us on the ladder don't even realize. One is that the world is upside down. The world is upside down, and what we think of as the bottom is actually the top, and vice versa. Here's the second big secret, is that God has a plan to turn the world right side up. And that is John's message. Well, I should say God's message to us through the word of God, or through, through the book of Luke and in the prophecies of John. Let's look. Did you guys notice in these first two verses, there's a lot of historical figures. Now that serves two purposes. One is we know that Luke is writing an orderly account. So he's establishing the date for, for anyone who reads after. He's like, this is not a fairy tale. This happened in the, this year of Tiberius and Pontius Pilate's reign. But it also serves another purpose. It shows us the top of the ladder, does it not? To the average hearer, they knew who Tiberius Caesar was. He was the first tyrannical emperor, relatively speaking. Augustus was also a tyrant. But he was even worse. And Pontius Pilate was the governor in the area. Now, get, get the movies out of your heads where Rome is kind of positively presented. Rome didn't want to benefit anybody but themselves. They had an unapologetic uh, policy of brutality on the people they occupied. And if you complained, they said, you're welcome. Yeah, we enslaved you. Yeah, we made you poorer. But you know what? We're getting richer, and you should be happy for us. That's Rome's policy. Okay? And then we see Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee. This is not Herod the Great, who you may have heard of, but three of his sons. They divided the kingdom between his sons. And guess what? They dragged the area into civil war. They were oppressive too. They did not care about the average subject of their kingdom. They were interested in one thing, getting richer and staying in power. And then the high, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, this is, this is actually Luke's joke, um, because there's only one high priest, and it was actually Caiaphas, but Annas is Caiaphas's father. Annas had been high priest, and all of his sons had served as high priest after him. He's kind of like Putin. Even when he's not in office, he's in office. So it's kind of like, hey, when both of these guys were high priests, it was like, ha, ha, ha. Right? So he had taken this thing that was supposed to be the person leading people to God and turned it into a new power base that was corrupt and oppressive as well. He's showing us the, the, the top of the ladder. What is God's message? What is he telling Israel through John? We see in verse 3 that, that John went uh, into the wilderness around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So what is the, what's the message? It, it's repent. We first of all see that in where John is set up. Anytime you look in the Bible and a prophet goes to the wilderness, that is a statement of God. You can't hear the word of God in Jerusalem. You can't hear it from the official leaders. You've got to go out to the wilderness. I brought a little slide for you. 
all right, of where John was. It's going to be there in just a sec. Just imagine it. Okay. <laughs> so you had Jerusalem. That was the main city. 30 miles outside. There you go. So, so Jerusalem is down there. You all see it? And then you had to walk 30 miles. And there was not like good roads. You had to walk three days to go hear the word of God. Because the city had become so corrupt. The leaders so unfaithful. That God sends his prophet not to the city but to the wilderness. And then also you see that he is baptizing people. We could lose the slide. Do you know why you got baptized in those days? It, it, it meant you were converting to being a believer, okay, from being an unbeliever. So he's saying to everybody, all you people who consider yourself good Jews, come get converted and be believers, okay, because you're not. And then we see this prophecy from Isaiah, as it is written, verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Now, this image is of mountains being brought down, valleys being lifted up. Most commentators see this as the, the top of the ladder and the bottom of the ladder, right? Of people repenting, of people preparing for the coming king. So the, the message is repent, and we see it's to repent from the heart, repent for real. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. Now, this is how you start, this is how you get, like, retweets. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. He hasn't found out about the secret sensitive thing. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do, I love this. This is a really good rendering of the Greek. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So, so these folks where it, it, it kind of like John gets this following. So it's like the thing to do. You're a good Jew. Go out to the wilderness, get baptized, right? It, show your piety. He's like, man, don't, don't even bring that external only stuff. Great, you guys are born Jews. Guess what? what? What does he say? I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's saying not just the externalities. Don't make a show of faith here. Repent and repent from the heart. Really repent. And also, so that it shows up in action. In verse 10, the crowd asks a question that the hearer is supposed to ask too. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. So faithful generosity, right? And then I want you to pay special attention to this part. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teachers, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you were required, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. 
Now, if you're like, hey, this doesn't sound very gracious, that was very gracious right there. Let, let me explain something to you of who tax collectors and soldiers were in that society. A tax collector was someone who collected taxes for the Roman oppressors. These were Jews that collaborated with the Roman government. And it wasn't based on like, oh, well, you know, you make less than this and have this many dependents, you're free. Not how it worked. They would come to your house. They'd bang on the door. Open in the name of the emperor. You'd open the door and they'd say, give me, you know, this many denarii or whatever. You, being a poor person that's been ground into poverty by Rome, don't have it. Say, okay, well, I'm going to teach you a lesson and I'm going to be back in a month. They drag you out in the street and they beat you in front of everybody. And then they come back in a month. And you still don't have it. You know why? You didn't get any richer in that time. They said, well, that's fine. You don't have to pay us. Tell you what, I'm going to take your daughter, and I'm going to sell her into slavery. And that'll be your tax, OK? We're good. That's a tax collector. John had heard that knock on the door, I guarantee you. And soldiers, don't, don't think of how much we love the American military. It's not like that. Think stormtroopers. Think of the people who are there to beat you down if you get out of line. People who didn't, like, there was no such thing as human rights or a constitution. Soldiers did what they wanted. So the fact that John isn't just calling down fire on these dudes is gracious. Instead, he calls them to repent. And did you notice what kind of baptism it was? It was repentance for the forgiveness of sin. It's not works righteousness. It's everybody being called. Turn right side up. The world is upside down. Don't live in the upside down way. Live right side up. Instead, why? Why should we? I mean, it's an awkward thing to be facing the other way around. People are going to tell you, hey, you're upside down. That's all wrong. You need to go this way. Why should you do it? It's because John tells them, someone is coming to turn the world right side up. Look at verse 15 with me. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you. That is why he's greater. He doesn't use water. What does he use? The Holy Spirit and fire. So lodge in your head right now. This, this one coming brings the Holy Spirit. Second, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now that is a, uh, an agricultural metaphor. Uh, back in the day when you would harvest your wheat, you would take a threshing fork, right? It's like a big pitchfork thing. On a windy day on a wooden floor, you'd, you'd toss it in the air and the wind would blow away the chaff. And that's how you would separate out your, your seeds that you would take into the barn and the chaff, which was good for one thing, that's starting a fire, okay? It wasn't something you kept. Now, this, the, he, he has just dropped two Old Testament references that mean a lot to the people who heard them. They didn't just hear things that they don't connect with. They're like, oh, someone's coming to bring the Holy Spirit, and he's going to end evil. Who is this person? This is what the Messiah does, and what does it mean? It means the beginning of a new 
age. Here's something that you must understand, okay? If you want to understand the theology of the New Testament, you have to understand, this never gets explained, but it's just understood by everybody. They believed in two ages. I brought a little chart for you that hopefully illustrates it. I'm, I don't have a graphics design background. Okay, so they believed hey, it works, okay? So the present evil age began with the fall of mankind and we all live in the present evil age. This is the age of the upside down ladder, right? Where the wicked reign and the righteous are oppressed. But they believed that one was going to come who would end the present evil age and bring in something called the day of the Lord. It's also called the last days or the end times or the eschaton or uh, the kingdom of God, right? And you're like, wait, end times and last days, isn't that where like Kirk Cameron's the last one left and the earth explodes? No. <laughs> really, the, the last days and the end times began when Jesus came. When Jesus came, this new age began. And you're like, wait, Kirk Cameron told me wrong. He didn't mean to. Okay? But yes. Yeah, don't, don't go to Left Behind to get your theology of the end times, folks. All right? So we're going to look at, at, the, at the Old Testament drops here. First of all, this one coming brings the age of the spirit. Joel 2.28 says this, And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And I don't have the rest of the text right here, so I'm going to read it off of here. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Keep going. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So the coming of the Spirit signals this new age beginning. Um, that, that text that we read earlier in Isaiah um, 42, that, that this one comes who's, who the Spirit is on, Right? Um, there are many, many others. This is a, a frequent theme in the Old Testament that it's prophesied that the, the, the wicked would not always reign. It would not always be the present evil age. But one is coming who's going to turn the world right side up. And he brings the Holy Spirit. And secondly, he ends the age of evil. Malachi 4, 1 through 2, this is the last paragraph of the Old Testament, says this. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Okay? This is saying that there will be a final end to evil. Now, if that sounds unkind, right? That, that, that the world, like the evildoer, those who, those who oppose God are going to be done away with. Like, think about what would be nicer if God was like, hey, Pol Pot, you know, you killed a third of your countrymen and, you know, like lots and lots of murder. <laughs> I'm not too worried about it. You know, you're good with me, buddy. Like, is that nicer? 
Hey, Papa Doc, yeah, you destroyed your nation. You, like, untold people lived in terror under your reign, and they're, they're, the, the country of Haiti still destroyed because of you. Get over here. Right? Unrepentant. That's, that's, that's not nicer. Okay? Instead, if we are serious about wanting to see a world that, that, that is right side up, God at some point has to put an end to evil. And that is exactly what it said Jesus will do. Unless you think that this is somehow not the gospel, look at verse 18. With many other words, John exhorted the people and what proclaimed the good news to them. This is part of the gospel. Did I say the gospel is not Jesus dying on the cross for our sin? No, it is. But it is also that Jesus is going to turn the world right side up. And we even see, like, total spoiler alert, but we see that, 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 that Jesus comes just a couple of verses later. I don't think this is on here. But verses 21, just listen to this. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So who's, who's the one bringing the age of the Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit descends and remains on Jesus. And then, of course, Pentecost happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out on believers. He's the one who brings this new age, and he will end evil at his second advent. Jesus came to turn the world right side up. The world not, will not go on forever as it is full of oppression, the wicked reigning, inequality. It will not be upside down forever. Instead, Jesus came to turn the world right side up. Jesus, where was he born, folks? What part of the ladder? Guess what? He was born at the bottom. He was born oppressed. He was born poor. And when he goes to the cross for us, he, he, he might have reached the bottom run. The way of Jesus, if we're his followers, what are we supposed to do? If Jesus came to turn the world right side up and he lived that way, then we need to turn right side up in an upside down world. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, if Jesus came to end evil, why is evil still going on? You notice in this chart, um, can I get the chart back where there we go. So the present evil age, you notice there's an overlap period, okay? We live in what's called the now and the not yet. The present evil age is still going, but, but, but the, the new one has begun. It, it's kind of like if you're, if you're at a, a wedding or a dance party and there's a song on, I don't know, lean with it, rock with it, and you're doing that dance, you know? And then... And then there's a new song coming on, like the DJ's blending one record. So the, I don't know, it's um, Hit the Quan. There's a dance that goes, with it, you know, everybody's. So the, the two records are playing at the same time. Some people are still doing Lean With It, Rock With It, and other people have begun hitting the Quan and hitting it hard, right? That's what we live in right now. We live in this overlap period when both are happening. And we are to turn right side up in this upside down world. Now, who? needs to turn right side up. Everybody. It doesn't matter where we are on the ladder. 
Joe Biden needs to turn right side up. And factory workers need to turn right side up. And everybody in the middle needs to turn right side up. We need to live in, the, in light of the fact that Jesus came to turn the world right side up. Whether you've believed the gospel your whole life and you can't remember a day where you didn't know Jesus, or you've never heard this before, we all need to turn right side up. How do we do that? Well, it's what John is talking about. Repent. It, it, repent simply means turning around. It's recognizing that the direction of my desires and my actions so often are upside down. They're going opposite from God's way. It's to turn around and go God's way. Now, th this, is, this is both true, like as John said, on the, in the internal. What's our motivations for doing what we do? I, I could look around this room, I see a bunch of people who work super duper hard, and you're really, really smart and good at your jobs. What for? Why are you doing that? Why do you get out of bed and go put in the work that you put in? Is it because you want to be a somebody? You're trying to prove to everybody that you matter? You want to be hobnobbing, perhaps not with Joe Biden, but maybe someone lower down, like the mayor, you know? Like, hey, I'm going to scrape and claw till I can have breakfast with the mayor. I'm going to be an important person. Is that your motivation for doing what you do? Is that your treasure? Is importance? or to insulate yourself and make yourself safe from the dangers of the world. Those are things we need to repent of. Motivations and values that do not come from a heart that wants to bring glory to God and flourishing to other human beings. But it's also our external practices. Okay? Now, does this mean taking a vow of poverty and we all need to work for nonprofits? Far from it. May it never be. Okay? Those of you who work in companies or work in government, you know how important it is to have honest people motivated by the right things in positions of influence, authority, and power. I think many of you should be in those positions. The question is, which direction are you facing? Is it because you're trying to climb the ladder? Or is it because you're trying from that position to go God's way? For instance, a lot of us want the power of owning our own business. Many of us don't recognize that working for yourself is power, right? You get to hire people, get to create a culture, get to set your own schedule. It's cool. Why? Is it because you're trying to get a seat at the table with the big deals out there? Trying to prove that you matter? Trying to, trying to protect yourself? Or is there a genuine heart there that says, I love doing my job. This is what God built me to do. And I'm going to start a company that treats its workers fairly and has ethical practices and is going to contribute to flourishing in the world. All of us vote somewhere. Whether you're an American citizen or not, you have a say unless you live under a dictatorship, of course, you might be listening online. You have a say in how things are run in your country. How are you gonna use that power? How are you gonna use your voice to help you climb? You're gonna wield your influence to pull strings for you and yours? Or are you gonna use your power and influence 
to benefit all people, to have a society that more reflects the way God would run it. When we get up and go to work, you're viewing other people there as competition. Maybe you try and get credit for an idea that is partially someone else's. Or are we going to go God's way? Are we going to turn right side up in an upside down world and be content with what comes? Now, what does this look like in real life? Have you guys ever heard the story of how Sunday school got started? You might not think of the origins of Sunday school as exciting, but there was once uh, two people, one named William Wilberforce. He was a, he was a top of the ladder guy. He was a member of parliament in England and very, very rich. Okay? And, and he led the charge against the slave trade. He, he's the one who led the charge to get it eradicated. And then, then his best friend, who was the J.K. Rowling of her day, named Hannah Moore. You might not have heard of her, but she was quite famous in her day. Both of them really loved the Lord and devoted their lives to serving the Lord. And um, William Wilberforce was always in terrible health, had huge health problems throughout his life. And so Hannah Moore, who was like best friends, was like, hey, we should go out to the country. Get out of London. I know a place. It's called Cheddar Gorge. And so they, they went out to Cheddar Gorge, renowned for its beauty, and it was beautiful. But on their way past Cheddar Gorge to the house they were staying in, they went past a little village called Cheddar. And they saw there children so poor they were literally naked outside. They saw people laying passed out drunk on the street. They saw families literally living in caves because there wasn't suitable housing. They saw that there was no school. They saw that there was no church. And everywhere were the signs of a forgotten people without hope. And so when they got to the house they were staying, William Wilberforce said, I'm not going to take dinner right now. I'm going to go to my room and I need to talk to the Lord. And so he went in there and he prayed for a while. And he came out and he said, Miss Moore, something must be done about cheddar. And she said, I agree. And he said, well, if you'll be put to the trouble, I'll be put to the expense. And so William Wilberforce wrote, he expended his fortune, died broke. And Hannah Moore spent years and years of her life trying to transform this town of Cheddar. And one of the things she did was she got a church going there. And she figured out that these folks mined for what little money they could get, and they mined six days a week with only one day off, Sunday. And so, so she said, well, they can't come to school. The children can't come to school, or they won't eat. And so they'll come in an hour before school, and everybody can come in, and we'll teach them to read, hence Sunday school. These folks did not take their position on the ladder as an opportunity to rise higher, to use it for themselves. Instead, they used it to honor Jesus. That's what it is, to turn right side up in an upside down world. I, I, I love the cuddliness of Christmas, okay? It's good stuff. Fireside, presents, candy, and the rest of it. But let's not forget, Jesus didn't come for cuddliness. Jesus came to turn the world right side up, 
we need to live right side up in this upside down world. Please pray with me. Jesus, I pray that we would hear your word. That we would repent, each and every one of us. I know my heart treasures so many upside down things. I pray, God, that you would instead show us the way of Jesus.